Good evening, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the soon-to-be-dusk, beautiful American Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 24th of July, 2020, and I'm going to be giving you a second uh, lecture series tonight in this segment describing aging. So last time we talked a fair amount about the some of the biochemical um, malformations and um, convolutions that occur because of mutations in genes that are associated with bioenergetics, particularly glycolysis and the tricarboxylic acid cycle. And I told you I was comparing that to what occurs in aging. And so what I want to do is I want you to reflect back on um, whatever you have in your uh, collegiate history, or maybe even um, in your graduate school, medical school, uh, pharmacy school history, as you think back about biochemistry, and particularly, uh, you think back about reactive oxygen species, because we're going to get into this uh, fair amount tonight. And that's the reason I'm doing this is because tomorrow, I want to be able to finish off reactive oxygen so I can get back into talking about more of the pathophysiology or actually normal physiology leading to patho, uh, pathological states during the aging process. Basically, aging itself is a process of the slow deterioration of certain tissues in the body, which are the result of various changes in the progression of gene expression. And that alteration of gene expression, particularly in immune cells, both lymphocytes and leukocytes, uh, play no small role in the aging process. But remember, those um, immune responses are themselves formulated and uh, induced by stresses in the body that one accumulates with age. So I want you to be thinking about that kind of paradigmatic shift as I tell you now just about the basics of um, reactive oxygen. So let's get started again. I'm Dr. Dan Guerra. So this should be kind of fun. So oxidative damage has been suggested to hasten senescence or cellular aging. You can think of a couple of different places where you get oxidative damage from normal metabolism. One is oxidative phosphorylation. Of course, that's a process by which the mitochondria utilizes the reduced forms of nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide and flavin adenine dinucleotide. And through the five complexes in the intermitochondrial membrane, you're able to pump protons across the intermitochondrial membrane into the intermembranous space, the same time transferring reducing equivalents, ultimately reducing molecular oxygen to water, at the same time pumping protons through a, an ATPase, by functional ATPase, so that ADP plus PI synthesizes ATP in the mitosome. You then transport that ATP out of the mitochondria, and that then can be used for work in the cell. But in that process where you take molecular oxygen to water, those are one electron reductions. The first reduction makes superoxide. The second reduction, with the help of two protons, makes hydrogen peroxide. The next reduction, with one extra proton, makes one molecule of water from uh, H2O2 plus a free 
hydroxyl radical, which is a very potent oxidant, probably the most potent oxidant in living systems. But then one more reduction with an electron and a proton makes another molecule of water, and you've now completely reduced O2 to water, two, two moles of water in the process entirely. So during that process, those intermediates I just told you about, superoxide, hydrogen peroxide, hydroxyl radical anion, those can all be quenched, and they're quenched by various enzymatic reactions. One is taking superoxide, two molecules of that, plus two protons, and making, again, hydrogen peroxide and back to more molecular oxygen. That enzyme is called superoxide dismutase. Another enzyme that takes hydrogen peroxide, two molecules of that, and makes water and oxygen is catalase. And the third enzyme that can quench some of these reactive oxygen species are the peroxidases. More on those later. So you know you have antioxidants that are also in the mix. So besides these enzymes, you have antioxidants. So these are naturally occurring biomolecules that reduce oxidative damage from all of these free radicals. And those include glutathione, ascorbic acid, or vitamin C, tocopherol, or vitamin E, and of course, beta carotene in its parent form. Those are some natural uh, uh, molecules which are able to reduce, fully reduce those reactive oxygen. So what about oxidative damage? What does it do to the macromolecules in the cell? Well, you get DNA damage. So during aging, oxidants interact with DNA to produce mutations. And some of those mutations can be involved in um, ultimately incorrect gene expression. But before that even occurs, there are inhibitions of DNA replication recombination, and of course, repair, as well as malfunctions in transcription rates, all of which can lead to cancer. Oxidants also modify proteins. So you get DNA damage, now you have polypeptide damage. Now this occurs by inducing the formation of a carbonyl. Carbonyl groups alter or actually can, can destroy proteins' normal basal functional uh, activity. Structure function, both can be lost because of this oxidation. The carbonyl content of protein increases dramatic, dramatically in older systems, in older organisms. Greater than 40% of all proteins in older individuals, this is from human populations, are actually damaged in one way or another. That's because it's believed, if you, if you buy into the theory of oxidant theory of aging, that we accumulate um, the inability to remove reactive oxygen at the same time that reactive oxygen is able to cause malfunctions to DNA and protein. Finally, and this is what I think is the most significant in many ways because lipids make up our membrane, so all signal transduction pathways and all regulation of transport and all bioenergetics, just to name a few things, all get corrupted when you get lipid peroxidation. This, of course, is a modification of lipids you find in membranes and all the membranes, plasma membrane, ER, Golgi, a nuclear envelope, mitochondrial membrane, and of course, uh, the peroxisome. Dietary restriction, as it turns out, seems to show a decrease in serum levels of peroxides, which are the product of those reactions. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that because you find them in the blood that you get a uh, a correct or, or a, an efficient amount of reduction 
of lipid peroxides in tissues. This has not been fully explored yet, even though you think after 50 years of recognizing this in serum, that's primarily because these molecules are highly reactive and it's difficult to detect their um, equilibrium concentrations. Uh, we, we, we can do this in cells. We can even do this to some extent in uh, animal models, but in humans, this has been sort of a more difficult uh, research to uh, fully develop, although we have tried it. Now, lipid peroxides and lipid peroxidation, it, one of the major things that's linked to disease in humans, which can lead to uh, death during aging, is of course atherosclerosis. And of course, atherosclerosis is negatively associated with a long lifespan. In fact, it's that and it's uh, associated cardiovascular disease are the major causes of death in the West, particularly of men. So it's also been shown that oxidative damage seems to cause senescence. And again, this is somewhat controversial, although it has been uh, observed. If oxidants accumulate, you get senescence. And if that occurs, what would you predict? First of all, oxidative damage should increase with aging, if indeed aging is a result of this mechanism. Most types of oxidative damage do increase linearly or almost linearly and sometimes even exponentially with increasing lifespan. But this rate constant is by no means um, constant. Number two, if oxidative damage causes senescence, you would expect longer lifespans should correlate with low oxidant levels or high antioxidants. So what's the evidence for that? Well, levels of serum peroxides in lab animals, lab animals do correlate with their lifespan. Higher levels of example, superoxide dismutase, things I just told you about, and uric acid, which also quenches oxides, are associated with increased lifespan, at least in rodent models. I emphasize again, rodents. Third possibility in determining whether oxidative damage is associated with senescence is experimental increase, experimental increase of antioxidants should therefore slow down senescence. So the injection of an old rodent with an antioxidant, one called PNB, and I'll give you the, uh, what, what, what that molecule basically is, it's an antioxidant that's been used for a long time. It's phenyl-alpha-terp-butyl-nitrone, okay? That's PBN. So that's an antioxidant that's used in laboratory animals and also has been tried in humans. Now, if you, if you add that, it leads to reduced levels of oxidative damage to the brain in animal models. And these animals also seem to perform better in tasks such as the navigation of the maze. That was published first in Neuroscience Letters back in 1996, it's a March 1st paper, volume 205, page 181, if you want to look that paper up. It's a classic paper in neuroscience, so that's on, on oxidative damage. Now, an aging 24-month-old rat that are from this paper, chronically treated with a synthetic spin-trapping antioxidant, PBN, I just told you about, phenyl-alpha-terp-butyl-nitrone, for up to nine and a half months, this chronic PBN treatment did the following. It improved, according to the model system they were using, cognitive performance of aged rats in several tasks. Second, it resulted in greater survival during the treatment period. And three, it decreased oxidative damage within brain uh, nuclei. And those nuclei are ones associated with significance to cognitive function, such as the prefrontal cortex. 
Now, these results not only provide a direct linkage between free radicals and oxidative damage and cognitive performance in old age, but it also may suggest that synthetic brain antioxidants, such as this uh, PBN, could be used for uh, to treat cognitive impairment in diseases like Alzheimer's. Okay. Again, this is back in 1996 when this was first being um, suggested. Now, I'll jump up to a paper that was published in Redox Biology in 2018, uh, April of that year, um, volume 14, page 391 to 397. You can look that paper up as well. What does this paper tell us? Cancer-induced bone pain, which they gave an acronym CIBP, may be associated with reactive oxygen species in this inflammatory and neuropathic pain. So reactive oxygen species scavengers have, in the years since that first paper was published, have been established to generate an antinociceptive effect. Okay, antinociceptive, so that has to do with pain, right? Nociception is pain reception. Okay, so two raw scavengers were used in this uh, paper. Uh, in, in, in this is a well-established CIBP model. Remember, can cancer-induced bone pain model. And it's a rat model, and the group found that an intraperitoneal injection of, again, entered butyl-1-alpha-phenylnitrone, that's still the same PBN, at 500 and 100 milligram per kilogram and 4-hydroxy-2266 tetramethylpiperidine-1-oxyl, uh, the company name for that is Tempol, at 100 and 200 milligram per, per kg, significantly suppressed the established mechanical allodynia. Now, allodynia, what that is, it kind of an unusual thing. It's pain sensation from stimuli that doesn't normally cause pain. And a good example of that is pouring water on a sunburn. Okay, so normally when you pour water on skin, it doesn't hurt. But when the skin has sunburn, it does hurt, right? So that's allodynia. Okay, so that was their model that they were using here. And they were doing this in these CIBP rats, these cancer-induced bone pain rats. Indeed, repeated injection of those two antioxidants, PBN and Tempol, showed cumulative analgesic effect without any tolerance, which means... The more they gave the drug, it continued to work. You didn't start to see them tolerate the drug, meaning that it no longer had any efficacy. PBN and Tempol treatment notably suppressed the activation of spinal microglia in those CIBP rats. So it seems to have something to do with microglia. Now, you know those are resident macrophages that you find in neural tissue. Okay. Now, what they concluded in this paper was that raw scavengers, which is what these two molecules, these two compounds are called, attenuated and established cancer-induced bone pain. And they did so by suppressing the activation of microglia in the spinal cord. So now you're starting to see the immune system. Now, how does this have to do with aging? Well, aging has to do with the accession, if you want to call it, of various diseases. One of the diseases is cancer, and one of the chronic conditions, whether or not it's cancer-caused, is pain. So is it possible that aging and then the effects of oxidants and then the repeal of those oxidants using the antioxidants 
is associated not so much with just straightforward cellular senescence as the aging of the cellular mass that makes up the organism, or does it have to do with the vagaries of disease? And one of the readouts of disease is chronic pain, you see? So maybe that has something to do with the aging process. That's what they were looking at. Right. So you get how where there's a florid amount of information here in the literature. Now here's another paper. This is published back in 2008, but it's from a really good journal called Free Radical Bio Biology and Medicine. Uh, 2008, November 15th publication, volume 45, page 1361 to 74. Now they were looking at the same compounds, nitrones, and these nitrones, they are explaining to you, trap free radicals such as those partially reduced forms of oxygen during the complete reduction of oxygen to water as in oxidative phosphorylation. So many diseases of aging, now here's where, where disease comes into the aging um, paradigm, stroke, cancer and cancer development, including metastasis, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, are known to have enhanced or be associated with enhanced levels of free radicals and overall oxidative stress. So derivatives of that nitrone PBN, now they made many derivatives because these people are radiation biologists, they're not medical people. So derivatives of PBN are significantly more potent than that parent compound that has been used in the past. And they are used for stroke and anti-cancer agents. So these things are being implemented in stroke and cancer. Nitrones, act synergistically in combination with standard antioxidants. And what they appear to do is prevent uh, also uh, collateral damage to the body, which is something known as acute acoustic noise-induced hearing loss. So that's kind of interesting because they, probably because they're quenching that uh, free radicals that, that gen are generated in acoustic noise-induced hearing loss. Now, however, the free radical trapping biochemistry mechanisms don't seem on their own to explain all the pharmacological and therefore therapeutic effects of these nitrones. Although those mechanisms do seem to be functioning. And so the drugs themselves, whether or not we know their complete mechanism, may hold promise for age-related diseases like stroke and cancer. So it's likely that these may be functioning at the level of a hyperimmune suppression. Think back about the microglia paper I mentioned to you a few moments ago. Okay. So next paper I want to tell, uh, bring to your attention is current topics in medical chemistry. Now this is published in 2017, uh, volume 17, pages 2006 to 2022. Okay. So now what is this paper going to tell us? It's going to tell us that nitrones have been extensively used for the detection of transient free radicals using electron paramagnetic resonance. That's EPR or ESR type technology. Now, since the 1980s, nitrones have also been widely used as protective agents against oxidative stress that we've just been talking about. Remember, this paper was published in 2017, so not that long ago. Uh, chemical and pharmacological properties of nitrones um, if you start studying them, depend mainly on the connectivity uh, that they are with, that, that they associate with each other, the bonding patterns, as well as the nature and the position of the substituents around that nitrone 
ring group. So this enables novel and successful approaches to the treatment of a broad spectrum of diseases because you can play around with that substitution pattern on that backbone nitrone group. And this is going to be, and these diseases they're looking at are associated with overall stress and the stress of aging or senescence. So these authors claim that there's new promising nitrile compounds that they're now producing that are available for the development by translational medicine that may exert even superior bioactivity and efficacy than what we've already seen, such as the parent compounds. An unsaturated compound like a carbon nitroso or the nitrone base structure will directly react with the radical via a free radical addition reaction. And that's going to give a new radical with a longer lifetime. Longer lifetime means less damage. The product is called a spin adduct. And the unsaturated compound, which is often going to be a fatty acid in biological systems, is the trap. And that's known as a spin trap. This is how it's done in ESR and EPR um, studies. All right. So when we talk about oxidation, let's talk about oxidation of lipids for a while. There's an auto-oxidation of lipids, and that is an oxidative deterioration of unsaturated fatty acids. It's an autocatalytic process, and it consists of a free radical chain reaction mechanism. So the chain reaction includes initiation, propagation, and, of course, termination. So I want to remind you what a free radical is. I know most of you know. Free radical is a group with an odd number or at least a number of unpaired electrons. You have to have unpaired electrons. That's a, that's a radical. It's free if it's not held in a molecular cage. So free radicals are extremely unstable, as I've been saying, and they immediately react with other molecules. And when they do, they can cause this chain reaction. So they may form an intermediate, what's called a metastable molecule, but then that metastable molecule will um, disengage its electron and then reform a new radical, depending on the substitution. Now, initiation of a lipid during the oxidation phase starts with the removal of a hydrogen atom. And that can be found, of course, in an unsaturated fatty acid either bound to a phospholipid, which it would be in the membrane, or free fatty acid, such as when you do these reactions in vitro. So you can consider them like an RH compound, right? And you form the free radical, and in organic chemistry would say, call it R dot. So you're abstracting one proton from that unsaturated system, okay? Now that uh, that will basically, the way you represent that chemically is RH goes to R dot, H dot, okay? So you basically have two radicals formed from one. So the removal of the hydrogen takes place at the carbon atom next to the double bond. So that's why levels of unsaturation where they add fluidity to the membrane are also very labile parts or structures in those fatty acids for this auto-oxidation reaction. I want you to understand that. So that means the more double bond you have, the more likely you're going to get this auto-oxidation. And again, auto-oxidation can result in the corruption of the membrane lipid and therefore ultimately what? That's right, the corruption of the membranes. And then that can lead to um, cellular, um, either apoptosis or autophagy. 
So again, there's you can think about how much energy is required for the uh, proton removal and kilocalories per mole. Fully saturated system, that's about 100. And then when you get to unsaturated systems, uh, you can go anywhere from about that down to about 65 kcal per mole. And remember, that's always studied on the hydrogen on the carbon next to the double bond, because that's the easiest hydrogen atom to remove. So what are some initiation reactions that cause this? Photosynthesized oxidation, like photooxidation, metal oxidation, catalyzed by a metal, a transition metal, thermal oxidation caused by heat, and then, of course, the enzymatic oxidation, which is very common in biological systems. So you can think about initiation mechanisms. And if it's light, light in the presence of molecular oxygen promotes the oxidation of unsaturated fatty acids. That's why lipids are often kept in brown or very dark glass containers because of auto-oxidation when they're exposed to sunlight. So this photo-oxidation, light-induced oxidation, the energy is from light and its capture is aided by sensitizer molecules that are usually associated with the system. Those could be things like carotenoids and chlorophyll. Those are the pigments in plants, actually. So light excites these sensitizers, that is the pigments like chlorophyll or uh, carotenoids or retinoids in the animal models. And you generate a triplet state, and that promotes the oxidation by type 1, and type 2 mechanisms. So in type 1 photosensitized oxidation, the triplet state sensitizer will abstract a hydrogen or an electron from the unsaturated uh, substrate, usually a fatty acid in biological systems. That produces a radical that initiates the chain propagation. Now, this is the propagation phase of the system because it's initiation that the initial phase after initiation is propagation. Now, in type 2 photooxidation, the energy of the triplet sensitizer, because you, you kicked into the triplet state, is going to be transferred to molecular oxygen, and that converts molecular oxygen to its excited singlet state. So once again, you're starting to see propagation, because singlet oxygen is more reactive than triplet oxygen. So now you can get singlet oxygen reacting with a new fatty acid. That's going to generate an RO, where O is oxygen, dot. And that's a free radical that can easily start propagation. Because we have that generated, but you also have a hydroxyl free radical formed, right? The hydroxyl, really potent oxidizing agent. Now, that's singlet oxygen. So it's initiated by singlet oxygen, which is one superscript O2. Now, singlet oxygen is metastable. It's excited. It's basically the excited energy state of molecular oxygen, as you can tell. And it involves two unpaired electrons in the same orbital. So triplet oxygen, which is actually ground state oxygen, has two electrons with the same spin in two orbitals. Singlet oxygen, or the excited state O2, as two electrons with different spin in one orbital. So you can see that's far more uh, unstable than we call it metastable, right? Across a range, it's less stable. So that was the photooxidation. The next one we can talk about is metal catalysis. So 
without going into too much detail with metal catalysts, again, these are going to be transition metals, right? Which are common in biological systems, things like iron and copper. So iron, copper, cobalt, for example, they can initiate reactions and these are found naturally in living systems. So there you start with an RH, it's a reduced hydrocarbon, like say a fatty acid, plus a metal at the plus two uh, state of oxidation. You're going to generate an R dot radical. You're going to generate a proton now, just H plus, and you're going to pro uh, produce the metal with only a plus one charge. So you know, there's only one radical form there, and that's the parent carbon-containing compound. So that's a metal catalysis for auto-oxidation. So I'm going to leave you with that now uh, because I'm just about out of my time. And we're going to continue on a little bit further discussion of chemical oxidation using as example fatty acids because we're talking particularly about membrane auto-oxidation in living systems, which is very common during the aging process. Because remember, all the cells' membranes are the ones that become corrupted during the aging process, during cellular senescence. So I'm going to say goodnight now. And my name is Dr. Dan Guerra. And this is Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now.